hey folks, this is Risk, or this is Kid Fuck. Yeah. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Uh, on this week's episode, you'll hear Paul Normandon. The argument led to flirting, and flirting led to sex. I don't know if that's ever happened for you, but it's very nice. <laughs> that and more but before that if you didn't hear i kevin am now offering one-on-one online coaching and mentoring and you can find out all about it at kevinallison.com basically i'm using this platform called pensite at pensite.com it's an online knowledge marketplace it's a place for content creators and expert consultants to connect with their clients via video and audio on your computer. The scheduling of the meeting, the payment for the meeting, these are hour-long or half-hour-long sessions in storytelling for performance, like on risk, or storytelling for business, like presentations and project pitches and public speaking gigs. And a lot of people just want to meet with me about life advice, how to start a podcast, how to produce a live show. I've worked with people who don't have a specific story in mind, but just want to do a guided meditation and journaling exercise with me where they start to just go back and look through random memories. I've done consultations with people who are brand new to the kink community and want a little bit of mentoring about navigating that realm. Someone just reached out to say he wants some tips for how to make recordings of his family members telling stories from their lives just to have a family scrapbook, an audio family scrapbook sort of thing. I've done ongoing meetings with people where, say, every two weeks we meet again to go over some new material of this solo show they're working on, or personal essays that they're pitching to magazines and papers. So this is all stuff I've been doing for years anyway, but I realized that Pensite was the perfect place to make it an official, regulated, well-oiled machine. So if you're interested or you know someone who might be, go to kevinallison.com. That's K-E-V-I-N-A-L-L-I-S-O-N.com. Look for the information on coaching and mentoring. That'll take you to pensite.com. And I'm one of the experts there. And if you have any questions you want to ask before doing any of that, you can always reach me at kevin at risk-show.com. Also, Adam and Eve says the best part of staying at home is playing at home. Take advantage of the downtime and choose almost any one item at 50% off. When you do, you'll get 10 free boredom-busting gifts, including six spicy movies, a three-piece bonus kit, and free shipping delivered right to your door. Remember, the offer code is RISK. That's RISK at the checkout. Adam and Eve has thousands of products to make you glad you're staying at home. Uh, Sex toys make being at home enjoyable. Hell, even shopping from home is more enjoyable when you're shopping for sex toys. So go to adamandeve.com and use that offer code RISK. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is The White Blinds, behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Puzzling, three stories about confusion. But before we jump in, I want to give a huge, huge, huge shout out to our latest patron over at Patreon, our latest member to join, that is Chris who signed up for $100 per month. Thank you so much, Chris. That is hugely, hugely, hugely helpful to us. And if you out there don't know, there's tons and tons of bonus content to be found at patreon.com slash risk. There's always new stories showing up there and behind-the-scenes recordings. There's different prizes you can get for different amounts you might choose to give per month. Check it all out at patreon.com slash risk because it really, really does help keep us running. We very much so need it. Now, we're about to hear stories from two people we've wanted to have on the podcast for a long time, both of them. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Kendra Cunningham, uh, <laughs> a voice that I just love. But before that, Keisha Zoller. By the way, you should definitely check out Keisha's new show on Netflix, Astronomy Club. It's a sketch comedy show, and it's brilliant. And you can find Keisha on Twitter at K-E-I-S-H-A-Z. Here she is now with a story we call Dick All the Way to Rome. My husband, Noah, and I were having problems, or at least I was having a problem with him. Uh, He's a great guy. I mean, he's a short-form improv comedian, sure, Uh, like whose line is it anyway style. Uh, We shared the same friends. We even went to college together. But when we first started dating, it was so kinetic and we had so much sexual chemistry but the moment we got married he decided he had to have sex with me like a wife which meant missionary sex uh, which was boring to me and after a couple of years of having boring sex I protested and demanded that we see a couple's therapist And the couple's therapist uh, really talked us through our problems and encouraged us to have sex with other people. Before I could protest too much, I uh, was very excited and encouraging my husband Noah to go out there and like find himself and have sex with as many people as he wanted, preferably in Europe. And he kept pushing back, and I was like, listen, our our therapist told us to experiment and to have sex. So I said, yes, I was excited, but I decided I needed to have rules for myself because having sex when you're married in New York City can be complicated. (laughs) 
especially when they're with other people. So number one, don't fall in love. I was married, so this seemed obvious. Like, I shouldn't be falling in love until I figure out this shit because we're on pause. Number two, don't shit where you eat. I have so many glorious relationships that I don't need to ruin with a romp in the sack. And three, be a good dog owner. I own two beautiful chihuahuas named Johnny Cash and Loretta Lynn. Uh, <laughs> because I want to celebrate dead white people. Uh, I love them so much. And, you know, I took this as a chance to revisit New York and fuck across borders in my mind, logical borders, where I would enter a room and I would scan who was making eye contact with me and could I get them to engage in kinks I didn't know I had. Tried racial play for the first time ever. Hated it. And, <laughs> and I did all of these things and I was having all of this sex, had sex at the top of the Empire State Building. Uh, it's a beautiful view. <laughs> from behind and then in front and then behind. It is tremendous and it was worth it. And I was explaining all of my exploits to my best friend, Kevin. Kevin is someone I love so, so much. He and I had a date to meet up in Central Park one day with the caveat that he's like, hey, remember Andrew, our mutual friend who also does short form improv with all of us together? <laughs> he's back in town from LA. Is it okay if he hangs out? And I'm like, sure, why not? I see Andrew in the park. Six months in LA has done him good. He's Tanner. He's got a kiss more gray. He seems funnier, wittier, I don't know, more attractive. Or maybe it's because he asked me to grab his butt on a dare. And I got in there. <laughs> and at that moment, that was the spark, that handful of ass. <laughs> I knew I was like, ooh, I want this. And... I was like, okay, so how, how will I capture his affections? I attempt to ask him on a date. I say, would you like to come over and watch Twin Peaks at my house and I'll cook you dinner? He doesn't understand it's a date. So I was like, okay, we just need more time. So we meet up a couple of weeks later after a show. He's doing a Shakespeare show, Midsummer Night's Dream. He's playing a mechanical. And this is a tour that's eventually going to Italy. And I decide to go to the cast party. He asked, he was like, hey, you should come. And I was like, okay, I'm coming. Bits out, tits out. I said this in my head, not out loud. I have game. <laughs> and we find ourselves few hours after the cast party in the East Village above a drag restaurant on the roof with uh, queens on various substances as we are on various substances. And what starts as heavy petting turns into kneading and graphic dares. He dares me to touch his penis along with my best friend Kevin who's also there. Uh, so we both touch his penis. <laughs> 
But when Kevin goes to the bathroom, I decide to steal him outside. And I tell Andrew, hey, I like you. And he grabs me, and finally, for the first time, he kisses me. And I kiss him back, and he asks, are you going to take me home? And I think to myself, yeah. But then I say what my heart really feels. I'll take you home. But you better stay for longer, because I plan to get fucked and fucked again tonight. (laughs) We go back to my house for 14 hours of fucking and sucking. Straight. I'm not like being hyperbolic here. I'm talking, I go down on him, he goes down on me. We 69, we're screaming, hollering 14 hours of insertion and penetration until we're raw. We fuck so long, eight hours in, I have a call time to do a web series. I do my web series. I come back and I fuck him more. And it was good. The next day, I was a little sore. He was too, so we said we should probably like wait a day or two uh, to like stretch and limber up. The next session's only 12 hours, but it's so mind-blowing that I, I can't get it out of my head. I'm just like thinking about that dick, and I'm thinking about him and his beautiful green eyes, but ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, you can't fall in love, no feelings. And it continues like this for three weeks because unfortunately he has that pesky little Shakespeare tour with all my friends in Italy. After three weeks, he goes away and I find myself dreaming of how we could have sex around the city, where we could have sex around the city. And I find myself writing him erotic emails. They are bad, but I'm compelled to do them. And then one day, after a really, really bad audition, I start crying, and I just happen to get a text from that artistic director who's directing the play in Italy that we have an extra room in Rome if you wanted to, you know, just stop by. And I was like, hmm, Andrew's there. Mm, his dick is there. What if I, I just cash in all my frequent flyer miles and go? So I do. I email Andrew, and I let him know that I'm on my way. But his email's spotty. So I'm in the air. I land. I'm in Rome, and I have no idea where I'm going. I have my luggage, and I'm like, I know Spanish kind of. That'll help. It doesn't. And I'm wheeling my suitcases around. I finally get lost in a beautiful neighborhood, and we're staying in an Airbnb type thing. I ring the buzzer, and I yell up, and a familiar voice yells back. It's my friend Kevin. He lets me in. And he's like, oh, I don't think Andrew realizes you're, you're supposed to be here. You should go in his room and surprise him. So, of course, I go in his room and lay there naked (laughs) waiting for him to come and he comes and he comes and it's beautiful as we make love in Rome we have sex everywhere we have sex you know in the bathroom we have sex in front of people Uh, (laughs) not on purpose (laughs) 
When in Rome, there's a beautiful balcony outside, and sometimes you just need to be taken from behind, and then the front, and then a seven-year-old child is watching, and you realize, oh, God, what have we done? And you hurry inside, but you don't stop having sex because you want to finish, and we do. And we explore Rome. We even do things in the Vatican. I'll probably be excommunicated. Fuck it. I'm not Catholic. Because here's something to think about in the Sistine Chapel, a piece of advice. You can do almost whatever there. Everyone's looking up. Everyone. As we're getting lost in each other, exploring each other's bodies in newfound places, I get an email from Noah, who eventually took my advice and had been exploring Europe, saying, hey, I want to meet up with our short form improv comedy friends in Rome. First thing, I was like, I have to tell Andrew. I was like, hey, Andrew, so uh, you know how you know Noah and you guys are friends? And he's like, yeah, we have a trip planned to Amsterdam after this. Cool. Uh, Listen, he's coming, and we're still married and in couples therapy, but this sex thing doesn't feel like it was a part of the deal. So you know, and he's like, perfect we're not disclosing whatever this is and we go we agree we don't know what this is noah shows up i hug him uh we are cordial but like still processing do we stay married or do we not and Andrew's off in the distance trying not to cause a fuss because Andrew's a friend to Noah and he feels terrible. He feels like he was caught off guard. He didn't know all the nitty gritty because we were just having fun times, marathon sex. Last day, Andrew was there before his tour moves on. I go to hug him and Noah's there. And we must have lingered a hair too long. Because later that night at dinner, Noah goes up to me and says, so, you're dating a hotter version of me. And the truth is, I was. (laughs) And Noah and I talk and try to connect and see who we are to each other if we want to still fight for this. And we decide to press pause because I have to leave the next day and he has to go meet Andrew in Amsterdam. He gets to Amsterdam and he confronts Andrew and says, so you're fucking my wife. Andrew emails me to let me know that Noah's none too happy and that we should probably all talk. And I know, I was like, oh, this is bad. I shat where I ate. 
what do I do? What do I do? Invite him to a comedy show. Logically, I have an improv comedy show where $10,000 is on the line for us to make something. And it was an improv comedy show, so take that for what you will. And... I invite him to my show, and he says he'll try to make it. His plan lands that day, and Andrew's so kind that I knew he was going to try, and I knew that he really, really didn't want to hurt me. So I'm there waiting in the lobby of my comedy show, praying Andrew arrives. I know he's talked to Noah, and they've had three days of booze alcohol, weed, who knows what else in Amsterdam. And I'm thinking through it, and I'm running through all the different scenarios of like, okay, it's totally fine if we can't do this anymore. You know, I'm going to leave my husband anyway. And I'm alone. And to quell my anxiety, I just like put his name down for will call. At that moment, he descends the stairs. Andrew avoids eye contact with me. He's looking down at the floor, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is it. Oh, my God. The kindest, smartest, funniest man who has, like, just a kiss of gray hair and a tan is over it because I didn't tell him that I'm still married and I don't know what that means. So I panic and I hug him. <laughs> and he's, he tries for a half second to pull away, but then he falls into my arms. And I realize as I'm hugging him, oh fuck, I broke my rules. I think I love him. Oh, I've shat where I ate and I caught something but I was still a good dog owner. They're alive and well. They're fine. And after seconds, he pulls away and he kisses me. And in that moment, I know whatever this is is bigger than 14 hours worth of sex. And I go on to lose my comedy competition that night, but I fuck Andrew on the fourth and fifth floor of the Friars Club. And last month, we celebrated our fifth wedding anniversary by going to the sex shop and buying toys and outfits and kink. And he doesn't fuck me like a wife, even though I am his wife. (laughs) And I'm still friends with Noah, even though he still lives in Europe. He good. (laughs) And Kevin is still my best friend. And I never regret for a moment following that dick all the way to Rome. Thank you. Have sex with other people. What is this, some kind of one night stand? Go out and have sex with someone else. Someone else? For 14 hours. Someone else. 
second marriage. I was sitting in my sister's car in the funeral home parking lot drinking a beer. And um, I was smoking a cigarette. It was only like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I usually don't smoke before the sun goes down. But it was, um, it was a gray, cold day in Boston. It felt kind of like evening. And I had on a faux fur and a vintage shirt and dark, dark jeans. And I wasn't like, quite sure about my outfit because me and my sister were about to go to my estranged father's funeral. And I hadn't talked to my father in seven years when he died. It wasn't a big, there wasn't like a big fight, a big blowout. It was just like years of shit and uh, unresolved anger, you know. Uh, still to this day, nobody in my family has ever really learned how to deal with anger. You know, it's like sit down and talk to you for five to seven minutes about something you did that pissed me off. No thanks. <laughs> I think I'll opt for the, the act vaguely uninterested in you for five to seven years option. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, see if you ever wear the same prom dress as me again, you know. Uh, <laughs> but after my parents got divorced, it had been just like me, my mother, and my sister. Every holiday picture was like me, my mother, and my sister in different festive outfits, different shades of blonde, uh, different emotional states, you know, behind the eyes. We used to um, <laughs> we used to joke that we could tell what year it was based on how much everybody weighed, uh, <laughs> who looked sad, and um, and stuff like that. But my parents got divorced when I was going into high school. And my mother was like reading all these self-help books and affirmations and stuff like that. And I wanted to be like her. So I was like in the ninth grade reading Codependent No More. Uh, you know, <laughs> erogenous zones. Um, by the time I graduated high school, I had the vocabulary of a well-read divorcee. Uh, <laughs> but I still do affirmations to this day. I highly recommend them. I, I have over 100 written in a notebook at this point read them every day in the morning with my kimono. And uh, I, I, I do think I, they work. I feel like they almost, it's almost like I get brainwashed, you know, with certain trigger words. I was out to lunch the other day and the waitress said, are you ready? And I said, I'm totally ready. No one can stop me. I'm big. I'm strong. I move fast. Uh, yeah. I'll take the pasta special. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. But yeah, we were sitting in my sister's car and I remember the song Head Games by Foreigner. Does anyone know that? Head games, yeah, Google it, yeah, you know it. Um, it was on the radio, and my sister was sort of like singing along, and we were drinking beer, and I was about to like really, you know, get into it with her, and I saw my mother beelining like towards the car, and she didn't look mad, but she was sort of like intense. She just waved, like, come on, let's go. And uh, I could see my, my father's best friend was standing in the funeral home, like, entranceway, and my father was one of these guys. He didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. He really didn't like comics who swore. Like, that was his big thing. He was like, you can't, you, you can't be funny and swear at the same time. Um, but his best friend was, like, literally like a booze bag bookie. Like, he drank every day, and he had an illegal job. Uh, yet I would get in trouble if I didn't put the salt and pepper back in the middle of the table when I was done. You know what I mean? Like, that was the type of mentality he had. Uh, I didn't really want to go. I'll be honest. I didn't really want to go to the wake in the funeral because I knew that there'd be a lot of people there who knew my father socially and thought he was a really good guy and, um, and I thought he was a dick and, <laughs> and I knew it wasn't like the place to go to disprove my father's character you know uh, it was kind of um, 
not the appropriate timing, but there was a little part of me that would be like, well, it could be cathartic. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't. Um, me and my sister went into the funeral home and my mother was like right inside the door with all her friends. And her and my father had met when they were like 13. So they, they knew the same people. They were friends with those same people 50 years later. And um, even after they got divorced, they were both friends with the same group. Uh, Carol and Cutsy was my, my parents' names. And my father's nickname was Cutsy. Why? We don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, he claimed it was because he, he worked in a butcher shop when he was a kid. But my mother knew him since he was 13, and she never knew him to work in a butcher shop. Uh, nobody asked any questions. No one did any investigating. We just called him Cutsy. And uh, after they got divorced, he used to give me, like, tickets to sporting events and, and concerts and stuff to keep me on his good side. And he'd say, when you get there, make sure you tell him you're Cutsy Cunningham's daughter. And, and nine times out of ten, they'd be like, who the fuck is Cutsy Cunningham? Uh, <laughs> we don't know this guy. But, um, so we, we walk in. My mother's sitting there with all her friends. Uh, you know, she's a divorcee of 20-something years. She's wailing about how she's a widow now. And uh, <laughs> all her friends are laughing. You know, very sad event. And, um, and I go into, like, the sitting room. It's like the room before the, the casket. And I was trying to, like, keep it under wraps because I was dying to see. We had found out my father had a girlfriend. And um, she was on the scene when he had a heart attack. And she claimed that moments before he keeled over, he proposed. And uh, everyone in my family was like, oh, it sounds a little fishy, you know. And I was like, oh, not really. <laughs> yeah, my father promised you, you, promising you something you want really bad and then finding a weird loophole to get out of it. Sounds about right. Uh, but in the, in the sitting room, they had all these um, collages. It was like poster board with, you know, photos pasted to them, mostly of my father and this girlfriend. The girlfriend was in her bikini and a lot of them. Uh, apparently, she, they, they were saying, rumor had it, she was a gym rat, which was my mother's words, not mine. Uh, <laughs> but there was like one picture of me and my sister when we were like chubby little kids with my father. He was getting sworn into the, this government job, and we were like really happy little kids, you know, in this picture. And I think that was the first time that I really felt sad, you know, because I felt bad for these little kids and for, for us, for me and my sister, for not having a, a father to really be in touch with and. I think my relationship with my father had really resulted in a lot of, like, garden variety daddy issues, you know. Like, I had gotten involved with men who weren't available, addicts, uh, men who had other women, <laughs> uh, and, and stayed with them, you know, and, and acted like I, I wasn't affected by it, like I, like I didn't have any feelings. And, um, and I really, I didn't want to have daddy issues, you know. I mean, even at the time of the wake, I was involved with this guy who would come in and out of my life, I hadn't heard from him in like three months and he showed up at the bar I worked at and he was like, oh, you want to hang out? I'm like, oh, really? You want to disappear for three months and show up at my place of employment? And ask me if I want to hang out? Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make sweet, sweet love to you. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Uh-huh. Clear your calendar because I'm about to teach you a lesson. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't, I, I didn't want to have daddy issues. You know, I went to therapy. And I always wanted my therapist to be like, I've never seen a case like this before in my life. You know, you're a very interesting and unique person. You know, uh, <laughs> we didn't study stuff like this in therapy school. There's <laughs> like one man who might be able to help you. He lives in Austria uh, on a mountain. You'll have to hike there. Uh, that wasn't the case. <laughs> Uh, and so then I, I spot the girlfriend out of the corner of my eye. She's standing by the casket with sunglasses on inside. And, uh, and, and it quickly like, brought me out of my sadness. 
and uh, and I, and automatically like I'm ragging on her, you know, in my head. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> you know, like Jackie O at it, Cutsy Cunningham's wake. <laughs> <laughs> we're not we're not the Kennedys, you know. We don't have trust funds in my family. Well, we barely had trust. Uh, <laughs> but but it did help me, like you know, to get the courage up to to actually approach the casket, and because I hadn't seen my father in so many years, and he looked good. He was one of these guys who liked to look good. Worked out every day, played handball every weekend. He was like a regional handball champion, and he he, he resembled Paul Newman. He liked to tell people that, uh, <laughs> but he, he he did. He looked pretty good. Uh, and I went through the line, and so the reception line was basically like the girlfriend, my grandmother, my mother, me, my sister. Uh, it was like five women who never got what they wanted from my father. <laughs> I was like, oh, at least he's a dick across the board. You know what I mean? <laughs> But uh, I think that was, the, that was probably the most difficult part, just basically being in, in the reception line because I had to listen to everybody's stories. You know, oh, you know, when I broke my leg, your father played baseball with my son and he became the, like the MVP of Little League. And, uh, you know, your father like uh, mock interviewed with me for five hours and now I have my dream job, you know, all this crap. And, uh, and I had to bite my tongue from saying like, oh, really? Well, you know, he took me and my sister to the dog track when we were eight and five. <laughs> And I uh, would get visibly distraught if we didn't win. <laughs> if our dogs didn't win, place a show, he'd be like, what'd you base that bet on? I'm like, oh, I thought we were getting pizza, Dad. <laughs> uh, or the time that he got me a summer job and, uh, and I showed up at work and it was swarmed with FBI agents. It was like under federal investigation. Uh, but I, I, will say that one day, I will say it wasn't all bad. One time he did give me a car. And it wasn't like a commercial, you know, when people like ring the doorbell and you go to the door and he's standing in the driveway with the car with a bow on it, like pointing at me. Uh, he just like called me and was like, I have an extra car for you, which we didn't come from a, a family of fleets. Uh, <laughs> but, but, I, but I needed the car. So he gave me the address and, and I go to the lot and they show me the car and, and the car's got no wheels. Honest to God. My father gave me a car with no wheels. Yeah. I love and adore myself. Uh, but I called him up and I was like, Dad, this car has got no wheels. And he was like, well, I guess you better put some wheels on it then. Okay. Anyways, it was fine while I was around people. Like me, my mother, my sister went out afterwards. We talked about, you know, the girlfriend and the sunglasses. We, a couple of people at the wake had mentioned how my father owed them money. Uh, you know, like we might, like we might repay the debt, um, and it, it was like the general consensus. Like the woman who worked at the dog track won the most visibly distraught award at the funeral, but I think it was mostly like when I was alone when it really started to sink in because I was like, you know, that was it. You know, I was never going to get an explanation of how our relationship fell apart or what had gone through his head when he didn't keep in touch with us, and I had always had sort of like this underlying hope or anxious waiting that he was going to one day call me on the phone and be like, hey, you know, can you meet me at the pizza place? I want to tell you what happened and I want to be back in your life again. That wasn't going to happen. Now I was just like the woman who hadn't talked to her father in seven years when he died. That was who I was. And I really, I didn't want to be that person. I feel like I didn't really like self-identify as being broken. I I tried to rationalize it like by being like, oh, well, maybe my daddy issues will, will go away. Like ding dong, the witch is dead type of thing. But they didn't. It was, I went back to therapy. I did affirmations, back to therapy again, you know. And I really don't know if I would have ever, like, contacted my father uh, had he lived longer. I think um, I might have tried to retaliate in some way. (laughs) I feel like my primary motivator is spite. Um, But I I do think that 
it took him like passing away for me to, to admit that he had an impact on me. You know, I feel like if I had admitted that when he was alive, I would have felt like he won. So I, I definitely think that I still have some issues. You know, I'm not perfect. I'm better than my father. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that was like eight years ago that he passed away. And um, I still get letters every year from the IRS. He owes them, you know, what he owes them plus interest and uh, fees is like $64,785 or something. Uh, so and every time I open it, I can just hear my father going, oh, they want money? Can't squeeze water out of a rock, you know. Um, but every year I do call the IRS to tell them, you know, it's been another year since he's been, he's been dead. And it's probably the first time in my life that anybody really cares when I say, this is Cutsy Cunningham's daughter. <laughs> you guys have been fun. Thank you so much. This is Brian Ferry behind me now. Originally in this episode, we had the order of the first two stories reversed, and I decided to just keep this song where it was, even though it doesn't make much sense. Coming after Kendra Cunningham, who you can find on both Twitter and Instagram at the other Kendra. Now, our final story was recorded years ago when Risk was in Austin, Texas. As you may or may not know, we record more than we can put on the podcast. I mean, you know that at least because of our Patreon bonus stories. So it was so fascinating to revisit this one and to finally get it up and out there. There are issues in this story of sexual assault that are mentioned. So without further ado, here he is now. This is Paul Normandon with a story we call Ready or Not.
In 2016, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. My sister was the primary care person for her, and in December, I flew out to spend time with my mom and to give my sister some respite. I had another agenda. I had not talked with my mother about one subject for 44 years, and I thought she could die, and I should go ahead and ask. So I waited till she was feeling well on a day I was taking her to an appointment, and I was in the car with her, and I was driving, and it was just the two of us. And I said, in my calmest, chillest, least aggressive voice, hey, mom, whatever happened to that guy who molested me sexually when I was a kid? And the silence, I, I thought she didn't hear me. And then she said, you know, you took too long to tell us about that. And I found an exit to the conversation. In 1968, my dad had gotten the greatest job one could get. He started working for NASA. And that meant we all moved to Cape Canaveral, Florida. We were leaving the frozen tundra of Providence, Rhode Island, and we were going to live in the idyllic setting of Cape Canaveral with its rocket launches and its beautiful beaches and its unbelievable citrus groves and rivers. And it was just so pretty. And it had these giant swamps and woods, and we would go visit them. About two years later, after we had moved there, I started to realize how smart everybody was who was there. Because everybody I went to school with, their parents, they worked for NASA. And they were geniuses. And there were all kinds of people there doing all kinds of jobs. And then there were the other people. One of the guys there was old. I say old, he was about my age now. And he had curly, light-colored hair. And he always wore a baseball cap. And a shirt that was always unbuttoned and a t-shirt underneath and he had jeans. I wonder if he had more than one pair and a pair of boots that were always muddy. And he sexually molested me. And I can't tell you if that was like a few weeks or a few months. I just remembered to be fearful when I saw him. And it got so brazen one night, he came over to my house. He had me get my telescope out and he had one of my family members bring a chair out for him. And I sat in his lap, and this continued. And a few days later, he came by the house during the day, and he asked my parents if he could take me camping for the weekend. Now, both my parents were outside, and he had his old white truck. It was a pickup truck with a camper top in the back, and it was white except for the spots of rust. And I remember that back camper part and I remember the mattresses back there, and I remember the smell of the dogs. He smelled like dogs. And if I was in there too long, I would smell like dogs. Now, I was nine years old at the time, and I hid behind my mom. And my dad picked up on this pretty quickly, and he said, looks like Paul doesn't want to go this weekend, maybe another time. He got in his truck, and he drove away. And I dreaded another time. 
It never came, and I never saw him again. That doesn't mean I don't remember. In that moment in the car with my mom, I realized it had been 40-plus years, and I never addressed this. I never told her that from that day forward, I thought I was a woman. When I was eight years old, I was molested by a man, and I just thought if you're having sex with a man, it makes you a woman. Now, I know how that sounds today, and I apologize, but my eight-year-old brain made sense of that that way. And it held that thinking all the way till I was 13 years old. At 13, I learned about homosexuality. I just assumed that was what I was. I was a homosexual. And from 13 to 15, I tried having sex with boys my age and tried to figure out how that all worked, and it never really seemed to work for me. And then I went to high school. And in high school, they asked you those questions, you know, hey, say three things about yourself. And this was in the mid-70s, and I said, I'm a homosexual, as one of the three things. I thought this was a cool way to make sure no one talked to me. It worked. I also think it was a cry for help. Nobody heard that part. I noticed I was attracted to the high school girls. And so, at 16, I got hit on. And then, I had sex with a woman. And I thought, well, maybe that makes me bisexual. And then at some point, I realized I had absolutely no interest in men, but I kept having as much sex with as many women as I could, trying to validate, like a scientific experiment. Am I gay? Let's have sex with another woman. Nope, still not gay. This went on until I was about 20 years old. At 20 years old, I'm in college, and I have not had a relationship in my life, right? I have had absolutely meaningless sex. And I couldn't figure out why I wasn't in a relationship because I had packed everything that had ever happened to me away. I met this woman, and we argued the first time we met. We argued about medical ethics. Thank you very much. (laughs) I was studying philosophy. She was going to be a doctor. Uh, medical kind, and we had this common ground. And then the argument led to flirting, and flirting led to sex. I don't know if that's ever happened for you, but it's very nice. (laughs) And the very nice sex led to something new. It led to quiet times. It led to times just the two of us. It led to watching MTV with nothing else happening. This was completely new for me. Now, it also led to a lot of parties. We knew a lot of people, we had a lot of fun, and so I remember one time I was at a party and I was waiting for her to arrive. And I was sitting in this beautiful big lazy boy chair, and I was just sitting there minding my own business, when this girl came in and she found me and she sat in my lap and she put her arms around me and kind of draped herself around me. Now, I was thinking, hey, this is cool, nothing's happening. And my girlfriend walked in. Now, you know that moment when Miss America is announced and Miss America gets really happy and the runner-up, yeah, gets that look of, ah, shit. I saw my girlfriend's face. I saw her get that big smile. 
I saw that smile turn into a mischievous look. I saw her look around the room. She found another guy sitting by himself, and she crawled in his lap and looked back at me. And she had this big smile. And I said, see, that's, that's how we're different together. I told her to come to the house. I was going to order pizza. My roommates were all there, and we were going to watch a movie. She said, no problem. That sounds fantastic. We hung up the phone, I called the pizza place, and I waited for the pizza to arrive. The pizza arrived, and my girlfriend had not. So I called her apartment back, and I said, hey, I thought you were coming over. Why are you at home? She goes, I'm packing. Why are you packing? I'm going home to Houston. Why are you going home to Houston? I was raped. Everything in me was not me anymore. I was 10 years old talking to my parents who had found out that I had been molested and feeling confronted and feeling angry and ashamed and hurt. And I was so mad that somebody had done this to my friend. And I started talking to her and she said, no, I don't want to go to the police and no, please don't tell anybody about this. Maybe I'll stay the night. Could you come over and we can cuddle? And I did everything she asked me not to do. I told my roommates. I called the cops. I met the cops at her house. I told the cops everything she told me in confidence. And where before we were two magnets that were perfectly aligned, it was like one of the poles had flipped and we were moving apart. And I remember convincing her to go to therapy. And we got into the therapist's office, and I can describe the room. I can tell you the therapist's voice and her tone. I can tell you what she was wearing. I can tell you how soft the couches were and how it smelled like mildew in there. And when the door was closed and she looked at my girlfriend, she said, I understand something horrible happened to you. And she just nodded. And the therapist said, do you want to talk about it? She said, no, not right now. And I exploded. And I started yelling at the therapist that she had to convince her to tell the cops so the cops could find this guy and punish him and get him off the street and not let him hurt anybody else. And the therapist leaned back in the seat and she looked at me and stopped looking at my girlfriend. And she said, why is this so important to you? And for the first time in 10 years, I said it happened to me. And she put the pad and the pen down and she said, would you like to talk about it? And I said, no. And I think in that moment I became the biggest hypocrite and I felt so bad. And when we got onto the sidewalk, my girlfriend gave me a hug and she looked at me and she said, I don't think we should see each other anymore. I did see her around campus. And I didn't know what to say. And I just feel sad. And that feeling hasn't really gone away. Because over the next 34 years, I learned. And I know. And I understand. And I've helped people. And if I could go back in time, I'd tell her, I'm sorry I wasn't a good friend back then, but let me try again. I'd also tell her, I'm ready to talk about it now. Thank you.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Pedro the Lion behind me now, and we just heard from Paul Normandon. Now, don't forget, you can pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions, and you can alert us when you hear or see news of someone having an extraordinary life experience you can always reach me at kevin at risk-show.com. Uh, if you see, you know, a personal essay somewhere or a little news item or, you know, you hear about something that happened in your town, we can reach out and see if we can find those folks and have them share their stories in a much more personal and uh, emotional and intimate way than might have been covered elsewhere. You can always find me at Kevin at risk-show.com. And don't forget to come out for our live shows. The live show we just did in Los Angeles was so phenomenal. The ball is now rolling for our show at our new venue, The Virgil, in Los Angeles. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. And you can find us online on all of social media at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And, uh, you know, we have our Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook, and we have a subreddit at risk podcast so check out all of that don't forget to visit us at patreon.com slash risk to become a member of our patreon and there are so many educational opportunities for storytelling at the storystudio.org you can take in-person workshops in los angeles minneapolis and New York. You can take online workshops where you're workshopping with a teacher and various other students. You can download video workshops and take them in your own time. You can make requests about our corporate workshops for staffs of businesses. You can request one-on-one -on -one training from any of our faculty members. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Oh my God, there are so many people I've asked to lick my butthole on the kinky sex apps.